This is Aaron Mankey from Lore, and you're listening to Curious Minds. Hi, from PI Media, this is Curious Minds. I'm Ran Levy, and today I'm continuing the story of Richard Stallman and the history of free software and open source. This is part two. In the previous episode, I introduced Richard Stallman, one of the greatest hackers in computer history, whose bearded figure became iconic as the character of the Hollywood computer hacker. Stallman is also one of my biggest heroes. He has been an inspiration to me from the moment I realized I wanted to be an engineer. Even though Richard Stallman is admired by many, he's also considered to be not an easygoing person, to say the least. I had a taste of this myself while trying to schedule a phone interview with him. As early as the first email correspondence between us, Stallman demanded that I specifically note in the interview that Linux is a part of the GNU project and that I would refer to it by its full name, GNU slash Linux. If I didn't agree, no interview. He also demanded that I make a clear distinction between free software and open source, a distinction we will get to later on. Again, if I didn't agree, no interview. Both are legitimate and even important requests, of course, but I got the sense that Stallman is a man who takes his ideas and ideals very, very seriously. And lastly, Stallman requested that the episode be distributed in a copyright-free format such as Og Vorbis, and that the podcast's website will not use any proprietary technology like JavaScript. He did agree to compromise on some of the demands when I explained that the website will not work without JavaScript. Stallman took upon himself the role of a counterweight to all users who prefer the comfort offered by proprietary software over the freedom of free software. Like, there might be somebody who wants to talk with you using Skype. Now, Skype is a proprietary program, and we know it's malware. So if you put it on your computer, you're surrendering your freedom. At this point, I was wondering whether I should tell Richard that I'm calling him via Skype. It's the act of a fool. On second thought, maybe I shouldn't. People who really value freedom tell others no. No, I won't have Skype on my computer. No, I won't use Skype on someone else's computer because if I'm using it, then someone else is using it because of me. And I'm not going to encourage someone else to surrender freedom by doing that. But that takes moral courage. It takes moral courage, and our society doesn't, doesn't promote moral courage. A short visit to Stallman's website gives us a general clue about his militant character. The website is full of slogans and calls for activism, such as a call to resist oil drilling in the North Pole, a call to boycott Facebook due to its privacy issues, to boycott Apple, Amazon, the patent system, and even boycott Harry Potter, since Stallman believes that J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, is too greedy. 
1996, Stallman and his colleagues at the Free Software Foundation held a conference. The main speaker was Linus Torvalds. Interestingly enough, even though Torvalds contributed to the GNU project by letting Stallman use his operating system, he did not share Stallman's ideas and ideology. Of course, he was thrilled to assist the GNU project, but unlike Stallman, Torvalds was more interested in the technological aspects of software engineering and operating systems rather than the social aspects. On stage, Torvalds gave a speech where he said, among other things, that he loves using PowerPoint, Microsoft's presentation software. For Stallman and his supporters, Torvalds' words were nothing but blasphemy. They considered PowerPoint an abomination, a proprietary software made by a company known for its ruthless business ethics. Using PowerPoint? Who would do such a thing? Yet, the message Torvalds put forth in his speech, intentionally or unintentionally, hit a sensitive spot among the younger crowd. At that point, the Free Software Foundation was over a decade old, and many of its younger members grew up in a world much different than the world Stallman grew up in. During the 1960s and 70s, when computers were found mostly in academic institutions, free software was the norm, while proprietary software was relatively rare. Torvald's generation grew up in the 1980s and 90s, when having a computer at home wasn't unheard of. Proprietary software was all around, while free software was now rare. Of course, everyone believed in freedom and cooperation, but if you like a certain software and think it is useful, why not use it? Only because it's not free? Many of the younger generation hadn't connected to Stallman's militant and strict message, and this intergenerational gap led to a crisis within the movement in 1998. A crisis that ultimately led to a division and the birth of the Open Source Initiative. As we all know, open source is a much more familiar and household name than free software, and we'll get to the reasons for this and the actual differences between these two terms in a few minutes. The rise of open source created an odd situation, perhaps even a bit surreal. In fact, most people who have heard of me have been misinformed and believe I'm a supporter of open source. I get messages several times a week uh, thanking me for my contributions to open source, and I have to write back to them. I have to point out that there is a misunderstanding here. I support the free software movement. Well, I should point out that open is not a movement. The whole point was not to be a movement. You see, we are a movement. We're fighting for something. And the open source was started by people who didn't like the idea that there was an injustice to be fought and didn't want to say that. At this point, it's a good idea to introduce into the conversation one of the men who started open source. Hey, Ron. Hey, Tim. What's up? Thank you for looking. It's good. Although you might not recognize the voice, I'm willing to bet that his name will ring a bell at least for anyone who has been in the high-tech industry for the last 30 years or so. Here's Tim O'Reilly, founder of O'Reilly Media, which publishes great many books on technological topics. 
He is also one of the more influential thinkers in Silicon Valley and popularized the terms Web 2.0 and, as we shall soon hear, open source itself. I asked Tim about his recollection of the pre-free software movement period. It's actually interesting that you start there because there is a narrative uh, that this all started with Richard Stallman and the GNU Manifesto. My first encounter with free software predates the GNU Manifesto. Uh, you know, I was a tech writing consultant and I started using Unix. I was really steeped in the, in the Unix culture of free software. It was this big collaborative barn raising that built Unix. Even though it was originally developed at AT&T, you know, many of the key utilities were d- developed outside, you know, particularly at University of uh, California, Berkeley. And so I had become immersed in this, uh, you know, in this culture, started documenting and, you know, filling in the gaps in the documentation uh, for Unix. I'd put together several Unix uh, documentation sets for, you know, for clients. And, and so that was my world. It was the world of, of the shared community of Unix. Richard came along and he kind of said, well, copyright is evil. So we have this new thing called copyleft. Here at Berkeley, we just said, you know, take our software down to Copy Central and make copies of it. And, you know, I, that was the culture that I grew up in. It was just like, hey, we're doing this thing for research. We're doing this thing to advance the state of the art. And we give it away to all comers because, you know, it, it's just this reciprocal gift culture. It, it was really a continuation in my mind of that, uh, you know, UC Berkeley early Unix culture that was really just about advancing the state of the art without the big political overlay that, that the Free Software Foundation had. But again, for me, I was really influenced by we're on the Berkeley Unix side. And again, I, and I, I think you also have to realize that the Berkeley Unix side is also what, you know, where most of the proto-internet software was created. You know, the TCP ISP stack, you know, uh, uh, you know, the BIND, the program that runs the DNS, you know, SendMail, which did most of the early internet uh, mail routing. They all came out of UC Berkeley, and, and that was sort of, again, part of, of the world that I was living in. So in essence, Tim is saying that free software, or at least the ideas of free software, didn't start with the GNU project, and that open source has much deeper roots in the sharing culture of UC Berkeley, back in the Unix days. I think Richard played a really, really important role in, you know, formulating a set of ideas. But in a lot of ways, I feel like his work is a distraction from what was really happening because, you know, the the narrative that said it began with the new manifesto misses the fact that it was happening, you know, long before that. And if you look at the fruits of the traditions that were outside the scope of the Free Software Foundation and the GNU Manifesto, they actually have had a bigger impact. You know, all those people who were sitting there kind of trying to make the Linux desktop win against Microsoft, you know, was this huge distraction for, you know, the better part of a decade. And meanwhile, the future was marching on. It was marching on on the back of of, uh, what had come out of Berkeley Unix. And again, I, I don't want to give Berkeley too much credit because obviously a lot of the Internet software didn't. I mean, the, the TCPIP stack that, that ended up getting most widely used came out of Berkeley, but not TCPIP itself. You know, Bind came out of Berkeley, although, but, but not the design for Bind. The DNS was actually designed somewhere else. 
The popularity of the GNU slash Linux operating system clearly demonstrated the positive technical potential of free software. Still, there were many engineers and businessmen that doubted its financial basis. How can a company survive if it's given away its product for free? One of the reasons some businessmen refused to adopt free software stemmed from an incorrect interpretation of the term free in this context. Some people mistook it to mean the software was distributed free of charge, and what costs nothing, goes the idiom, is worth nothing. Of course, that wasn't what Richard Stallman meant. He spoke of free as in freedom, not gratis. But some business people didn't or couldn't understand the ideological nuances behind the idea of free software. In February 1998, a few developers and entrepreneurs met in California in an organization called the Foresight Institute. The catalyst for the meeting was a dramatic announcement by the Netscape Corporation that had taken place a month earlier. The name Netscape was familiar to almost anyone who used the web in the 1990s. It was the owner of the Netscape browser, the most popular browser at the time. Netscape's leaders were familiar with the ideas behind the Free Software Foundation and believed in them. In an almost unprecedented step, Netscape decided to share the browser's source code and invited programmers around the world to contribute to it and improve it. Netscape's announcement stirred a great interest in the technology world. The California conference participants of the Foresight Institute wanted to take advantage of Netscape's announcement and use the media attention to spread the ideas of free software. They decided it was their duty to educate the business world about the real advantages of free software, to emphasize the technical advantage of an open development model over a closed one. To do so, they had to detach themselves from Richard Stallman and his ideological burden. This wasn't an easy decision. Richard Stallman was a living legend, a figure larger than life. He was the face and the heart of the Free Software Foundation, devoting his life to the free software movement and to the ideals they all believed in. But the conference participants felt that the philosophical discussion about freedom, control, and class struggle was hurting their cause. They wanted to focus on the practical benefits of free software, such as the increase in innovation. But they all knew Stallman, and they all knew he would never agree to that approach. So they finally decided to quit Stallman's Free Software Foundation and established a new one called Open Source Initiative. The name Open Source was chosen specifically in order to avoid connotations related to free. This is where Tim O'Reilly entered the scene. In 1998, he organized a conference of some of the best and brightest minds in the software world. Linus Torvalds of Linux, Guido Van Rossum, the creator of Python, Larry Wall of Perl, and many, many other luminaries. I've been thinking about it all through the fall that I wanted to bring all these people together. Because that was the other thing. I realized I knew all these people. They didn't all know each other. You know, the people, I would go to the IETF meetings, the Internet Engineering Task Force. And, you know, you'd see like Paul Vickie there or... 
Eric Allman, you know, Paul Bixie, the guy who, who wrote Bind, or, or Eric Allman, who wrote Sendmail. But, you know, none of the, 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 you know, the GNU people, they didn't even know about the IETF, really, as far as I could tell. And so I kind of was thinking, I want to bridge these two communities, the Internet community and the Linux community. This conference is known today as the Open Source Summit. But it wasn't called that in the beginning. And so I scheduled this event, what I called at the time the Freeware Summit. Uh, in the meantime, and I believe it was about six weeks before Chris Peterson of the Foresight Institute, which is really a nanotechnology think tank, proposed the term open source. So I didn't know about that when I invited people. Uh, so I had kind of built a lot of relationships with press then, and I'd also kind of gotten this idea that telling a big story was the right way to advance the agenda. So in addition to bringing all these people together for this freeware summit, you know, my goal right from the outset was we're going to tell a story at the end of it about how all these people have this thing in common. Uh, but it was not actually till during the day at that meeting that I heard the term open source. And in fact, you know, we were talking about the naming issues and, and uh, then Eric kind of told us about the invention of this term open source. And actually, there was quite a bit of pushback. People were like, oh, it sounds like open source. You know, no, it's not, that's, that'll never fly. But I said, look, we really, want, we really want to have a common story. So let's take a vote and let's all agree that we're going to use this new term. And so everybody who was there, you know, we, we took a vote, open source won. And so we went to that press conference at the end of the day and, and uh, you know, we, we introduced the term. And and, and, you know, the way, the way the press conference was set up, I just had all these guys up on a, behind a long table. And we had people from the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, you know, San Jose Merck, which at the time was, you know, the paper of record of Silicon Valley, you know, Forbes and Fortune and in the room. And I said, look, all these guys have absolutely dominant market share in categories of software, you know, with no marketing budget, no company behind them, just on the strength of their ideas and this new development model and this model of giving the software away for free over the Internet. It's called open source. You know, I said, look, you guys have been told uh, the free software is this rebel movement that's hostile to commercial software. I'm here to tell you a very different story, and that is that you're all already using free software. You just don't know it. You know, it's, and I went down the list. I said, if you have a domain name, well, you know, WSJ.com or NYTimes.com or Fortune.com, you're using the software uh, written by this long-haired guy over here, and the entire Internet depends on that piece of free software. Oh, and if you send email, you know, uh, Eric Allman here wrote the program SendMail that routes 75% of all the Internet's email. 70% of all websites are actually running on Apache, which was started by this long-haired guy here, you know, uh, or co-founded by this long-haired guy here. Tim's initiative was a great success. The fact that so many opinion leaders and experts sponsored the open source initiative helped push it forward, and within a few years, it eclipsed its big sister, free software. You know, so I had no role in the coining of the term open source. Uh, I think what I did that was really meaningful and I think turned out to be, you know, where I turned out to be profoundly right. And, and I just said, I don't think this licensing frame really matters. And, and in fact, that was sort of why I kind of got demonized by, you know, the Free Software Foundation, because I was saying that th they didn't matter. It's hard to imagine our current technology world without GNU slash Linux, WordPress, Android, PHP, and many other software that are distributed with their source code. There are thousands of communities, large and small, 
devoted to software tools of almost every sort imaginable, from word processing to espionage software. Some projects last for many years. Linux is a great example. And some are a result of a weekend hackathon, fueled by pizza and soda. At this point, I think we should take a slight digression, you might say, and ask ourselves what draws big tech companies to open source their software, that is, to give it away for free. To help with this question, I sat down recently with Jonathan Israel of Wix.com, a company that specializes in providing easy-to-use web-building tools. So my name is Jonathan Israel. I work for the Wix Academy for about a year. And um, the Wix Academy is basically the department which is primarily in charge of uh, recruiting and training junior engineers for the Wix R&D. Um, but we've also expanded into establishing and maintaining the dev-centric culture that we have at Wix R&D. Wix, says Jonathan, not only allows its developers to release code they worked on as open source, it wants them to do so. There's a wide community. Of, of developers, mostly referred to as the dev community. Um, and that's kind of something that we also do here, not just in the academy, but throughout Wix um, engineering, is we work on the assumption that our engineers are first and foremost members of that community, and then they are people that work at Wix. So um, we promote open source projects, and we help organize conferences, and we... Uh, allow people the time to write blog posts and help them with providing like resources like tech writers or things and we do the developer relations to show it. Um, we're pushing forward a lot of standards in open source projects as in um, your code needs to be uh, documented, it needs to be clear and we allow uh, engineers within our teams that actually develop tools to help their day-to-day -day job work to open source them to allow people to use the same tools to allow people to learn from the mistakes that we had as a really big development group which brings me to an interesting question i can understand why you as developers have an incentive to release what you worked on as open source but what incentive does wix as a company have for outsourcing uh, open sourcing sorry uh code which its own workers and developers worked hard for. There's two main reasons for that. The first one I already said and I will say again, it's the idea that they're first and foremost part of the engineering community. And the whole idea with open source is, hey, have a look at what we did. And you can also work with the code and, and add things to it and fix things in it. And so it's really a two-way thing. You open source something and other developers interact uh, with you through your code. So you never actually meet them necessarily or even talk to them, but just by them uh, requesting to add something to your code that they wrote or fixing a bug that you had and you didn't notice, um, there's this sort of interaction. So it's kind of like a virtual uh, social, uh, social network. So it's not about talking like a little bit of small talk or showing events or something like that. It's proper, just strictly software engineering um, but it is a way of interacting with other people from that world. Um, secondly, and this is kind of a problem that a lot of uh, huge companies used to face, is the problem that looking at Wix.com, which is just this platform that allows you to build websites without ever touching a piece of code ever, uh, it looks 
like you said before, it kind of looks trivial. It kind of looks, and that's the brand as well. The idea is anyone could do it. And the, by going to Wix.com, you wouldn't realize that this is mostly a software company. So over 40%, roughly 40% of the company is still uh, R&D, still research and development. And that's um, a huge chunk. There's no other department which is as big. Uh, by allowing our developers, or not even allowing, it's encouraging, pushing, helping engineers that work at Wix, showing their work, if it's open source projects, if it's blog posts, if it's going on stage at uh, conferences and speaking about it, if it's a million other things that we could do, workshops and everything, that helps Wix show that the engineers that work here are high-end, are top-notch. They're looking at the latest cutting-edge uh, technologies that we could use. They're uh, very experienced. It's not your boring, ordinary um, software engineering. It's really the main thing that we do. Branding is a bit of a hard word, but yes, it allows us to show more easily. So not in a marketing kind of way, so no commercials or, or you know, uh, advertisements, but more just concrete information that shows what we do here and how advanced the technology is and how passionate we really are about good software. In other words, companies like Wix view the idea of sharing software not as a liability, but as an opportunity. By releasing software as open source, they encourage the developers to learn new things, be part of a greater community, and feel more satisfied. In the process, these companies also brand themselves as leaders and positive forces of innovation in the world of technology. It's a win-win situation that helped the open source community explode over the last few years. I admit that it was hard for me at first to understand why Stallman denies the open source initiative, an initiative that exists mainly due to his early efforts. But looking closely at Stallman's motives, I could begin to grasp the roots of his resentment. It's easy to let Stallman off the hook by saying that he is a rigid conservative ideologist who wouldn't put his pride aside and admit that someone else marketed his ideas better than him. But is that really the case here? I'm not so sure. Here's an example that might make you think twice about the way our modern technology world operates. It has to do with the Android operating system. As I said, it will make you think twice, since in fact there are two Android operating systems. In 2006, Apple controlled almost all of the smartphone's market. When you said smartphone, you meant Apple. Google saw Apple's success as a threat and wanted to gain at least some of the smartphone market share in order to sustain its control of search and other online services. Therefore, in 2006, Google initiated the Android Open Source Project, or ASOP for short, an operating system for smartphones developed by Android Limited, which was bought by Google. A resourceful community grew around Android, with many developers who created new apps and modifications for the operating system. A quick jump to the present. The tables have turned. Android has the lion's share of the smartphone market and is making Google a lot of money. However, its open source status has now become a disadvantage for Google. 
Since Android's code is available to the public, nothing prevents a competitor from taking the code, modifying it a bit, and then using it in its own smartphones or tablets. In fact, that is exactly what Amazon did. Amazon took Android, adapted it to its own tablets, and created a competitive app store to Google's Play Store. Now, you don't have to have a degree in business management in order to see that Google has no interest in providing other companies with a gift like a ready-to-use operating system. But on the other hand, it's also not in Google's best interest to upset its developers' community, the people who worked hard on Android all these years. So turning Android into a proprietary software was also out of the question. Google's solution, then, was to slowly but surely strangle the Android open source project. How? When users turn on their Android device for the first time, they find all sorts of basic and standard apps already installed on their smartphone. A calendar, keyboard, camera, music player, and more. These apps are a part of the Android open source project and every phone maker who wants to use Android gets them for free as part of the operating system. At the beginning, Google updated these apps on a regular basis. But over the last few years, Google stopped updating the open source apps. Instead, it released new, proprietary apps, substitutes for the old ones. The SMS application, for example, was replaced by Hangouts. The Music app was replaced by Google Play Music. And the same goes for the Calendar app, the Camera app, the Search app, the Keyboard, and more. The new apps are being updated frequently, while the old ones slowly rot away, neglected. For example, the proprietary version of the Search app has a voice recognition ability and can read search results out loud. The open source version for the same app supports text search and nothing else. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of a cell phone manufacturer, Samsung, for example. Android is an open source software, so Samsung could use it as is. It doesn't need Google's permission. But what Samsung will get is an inferior operating system with some aging apps. If it wishes to have the newer proprietary apps, it needs to strike a deal with Google and pay whatever needs to be paid. The final outcome is that Samsung and almost all other smartphone makers are tied to Google in golden chains and cannot compete with it. And if there is no competition, the customer is almost always on the losing side. Honestly, I don't blame Google. If I were in Sergey Brin's shoes, I'd probably make the same business decisions. And that's exactly what Stallman is saying. In his view, companies like Google adopt the open source policy for the financial benefit it offers. But as soon as that benefit disappears, they happily abandon it. Had Google, for example, adopted the free software ideology of maintaining the user's freedom, encouraging innovation, and so on, it might not have backed down from it so easily. Tim O'Reilly, however, completely disagrees with this assumption. I just think they're completely orthogonal. You know, the morality of a company is not encoded by uh, the license that compels them to, to morality. If we are compelled to morality, it's actually a much shallower morality than one that sees uh, we're all 
members of the same you know species you know or as Lao Tzu says you know all men are members of the same body if you think that way you will act morally i think of open source is the way of life you know just like gravity you know is the way of life you know it's like there are certain dynamics that that actually work and the quest for open source should be to figure out what works in terms of creating the most value for society for individuals for companies you know so i always saw open source as a scientific pursuit and i always sort of felt like the free software foundation sort of treated it almost like it was a religious pursuit you know well certainly it was certainly a moral pursuit and and the thing that sort of always bothered me is the people the critics who sort of said well open source doesn't have a moral backing that's sort of like the you know political conservatives saying that liberals don't have a moral backing you know, I go, you got to be kidding. You know, there's just different moral backings. One is this sort of stern, punishing father moral backing, and the other is one that's sort of the, the nurturant mother. The, the idealism of a Bob Scheifler or a Tim Berners-Lee or, you know, you know, so many of these people, you know, Larry Wall gave their software way to the world. And you're telling me that that's not a moral act? And, and it's more moral to, you know, say, oh, you know, we're going to put out this software with a bunch of restrictive covenants to make sure that nobody does something that we don't approve of. And I go, well, I'm just kind of in the more liberal side of all that. Richard Stallman still leads the Free Software Foundation as its president and continues to warn against the dangers of proprietary technology. I'm afraid that we will someday need free hardware designs and then to fabricate the hardware from them to have computers that permit us to run free software. Look at the iThings, those monsters from Apple. They're designed to make it hard to in, to install any different software. Apple is trying to have total control over what software people can run. In fact, the only way people can install software that Apple didn't approve is to jailbreak the machine. Well, think about that term jailbreak. These people, these users of iThings are saying that the iThing is a jail for its user. And they're exactly right. And Windows phones and tablets do the same thing. This practice is spreading. I hope it won't be true, but it may be true in some years that only free hardware designs will make it possible for us to run free software. This is a dark prophecy. I didn't want our interview to end on such a negative tone, so I asked Stallman which gadgets he uses, you know, as one geek to another. After all, Stallman is a hacker, the hacker. Well, I wasn't ready for this one. I guess that, that, that you like technology, right? I mean, a person, on a personal level. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I like technology. You see, I used to like technology. I found computers fascinating as soon as I heard about them. But starting around 15 years ago, I saw that new technology products, although they might be advances in some purely technical sense, or some convenience sense, typically were steps backward ethically. 
that they would deny freedom to users that the users had had in the past. This is part of a long-term trend. You see, the companies that make the products have an interest in having more power over the users of these products. And since that, since I saw this, I ceased being excited by announcements of new products and started to dread them. I must admit that Stolman made me think. I've always been a sworn fan of any kind of technology, and I wasn't the first to buy every new gadget and cool app. I never gave a second thought about my freedom of choice, right of innovation, or other issues Stolman cares about so dearly. I'll probably be more aware of these matters in the future, and they may affect my purchasing decisions. But how far will I go with my inner truth? Richard Stallman, as he was during the 1970s and 80s, was an inspiration, a mythological hacker, a man who breathed, ate and slept technology 24-7. But Richard Stallman of 2016 doesn't own a smartphone or a tablet and doesn't listen to MP3 music files. Stallman seems to be afraid of technology. For me, it's like hearing Superman confesses that he's afraid of heights. This may sound like an impossible choice to make. Should I give up my love for technology or should I give up my freedom? I fear that if Stallman is right, a day might come when I will actually have to choose. I fear the day when I will find out that I'm not brave enough to make the right choice. That's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Richard Stallman and Tim O'Reilly for their participation in this episode. Having two such giants, such important figures in computer history, together in a single episode? Well, what more can I ask for? As always, a podcast recommendation, and this time for coffee and beer lovers. The Drips and Drafts podcast is focused on making craft beverages and features interviews with experts on many relevant topics such as fixing draft systems leaks, cold brew coffee, and more. Check them out at dripsanddrafts.com, you'll find the link on our homepage. Thanks to our listener Tyler Sparks for suggesting I'll do an episode on Alexandra Elbakian, the girl behind SciHub the website that is illegally posting pirated research articles in the name of enabling research worldwide. It's an amazing story, and I'm sure I'll do an episode on it in the hopefully near future. A big thank you also to Mark Otto, who wrote to me with the feedback on our Astronomy Shorts series. I can't tell you how important this feedback for me, and for any podcaster really. If you like to suggest an episode topic, give some constructive criticism, or just let us know which episodes you enjoyed most, I'm always happy to hear from you. Drop me a line at ran, R-A-N, at cmpod.net. 
Our website, cmpod.net, has all of the show's previous episodes, as well as a place to subscribe to the mailing list and get notified each time a new episode is out. CMPod are Kelly O'Loughlin, editor and co-host. Check out her own personal podcast, The Highly Sensitive Person Podcast. Nir Sayag is our sound engineer. Danny Timor is in charge of BizDev. And me, Ran Levy, producer and writer. See you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.